Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation for those who own, manage or protect intellectual property. I'm Paul Roscoe, a senior associate and patent attorney at Appleyard Lees. With me is Appleyard Lees partner and dual qualified trademark attorney and solicitor Chris Hull. Hi Paul. Also joining us is special guest Professor Jason Lang, CEO and co-founder of ProMake and 3D printing specialist. Hiya. Today we will discuss innovation trends we are seeing across the field of 3D printing, both in industry and in global patent filings, and talk about counterfeiting and the IP risks associated with this technology. Jason, why don't you start by telling us your background in 3D printing and how you came to co-found ProMake? Well, my journey with 3D printing is quite a bizarre one, really. Um, I've been involved with 3D printing since the early 1990s, so it's about 27 odd years now. Wow. Started out in the in the jewelry industry, where we used uh, 3D printing to design and manufacture jewelry, because that's my original background was I'm a jeweler and diamond dealer by trade, and uh, traveled around the world. I was then eventually uh, licensed out to Louis Vuitton and Moe Tennessee whilst working on ships, and then my lifestyle moved into 3D printing and everything around lifestyle products, meaning shoes, handbags, cosmetics, fragrance, all product development and composites. Getting back to South Africa, that's uh, where I originally from. Couldn't get a job in the field I was in, so I ended up moving across to maxilla facial reconstructive, so making custom implants to rebuild people's faces for surgery uh, complications after gunshots and oncology and birth defects. So the the, the spectrum of 3D printing is really, really quite broad as far as the materials go and the uses. So that's my journey and that's how it's begun. And uh, how ProMake Limited came about was I, I, I used to cycle bicycles professionally and after what we call a high-speed handstand, as I, as I joke about it, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was training for South African championships on the velodromes and when my forks and my bike snapped and I hit the deck pretty hard and I broke 32 bones in my body and collapsed both lungs and major brain injuries and the rest of it. And because of that injury is they wanted to amputate my arm at the shoulder and because of all the work that we did and building, rebuilding people's faces, we ended up using the same tech to actually put me back together. So I designed my own surgeries, designed my implants, uh, designed my own cutting guides, reduced the surgery time because of the head injury that I had and uh, I got to keep the arm and I got to be able wow. to kind of get back to use again. And uh, it's, from there, we cracked a joke saying that we can harmonically tune bone. And in January 2019, uh, I, was, I was put on the task to reverse engineer the little ossicles, the three little bones inside your ear. And in January 2019, we did the world's first 3D printed inner ear transplant, putting us in the same category as the first heart transplant in South Africa. Wow. And that's what accelerated me coming across the UK um, and now getting to work with the likes of materials for such as graphene, which some of you may be familiar with. It's a single layer atom sheet. But because the principles and the conductivity and the, the way we can program the graphene has accelerated into making smart materials with 3D printing. So as I say, the journey is a very bizarre one. It's a long-winded one, so sorry for that. But it, uh, yeah, it gives you a bit of indication where it come from. I think you condensed it quite quite well there, Jason. So that's a very long story cut yeah. fairly short, I think, and possibly one of the most fascinating introductions that I've heard on one of these podcasts. I did a TED talk on it called How We Hacked My Body Back to Life. You'll see it on YouTube. So I'm just curious to know what type of um, equipment you had to use then, how long ago it was, and then what you are using now. For, uh, the, the, the where I'm going with this is more 
So one of the things that Chris and I were speaking about beforehand was, you know, we started in our professions around the same time. And at that time there was a large like concern amongst patent professionals of the challenge associated with 3d printing. For example, you know, classically you would draft a patent, you would get some claims granted for a product, and then you could effectively enforce that product against manufacturers. Okay. And then there's a concern that if you, if everybody has their own 3D printer at home, they can manufacture their own parts. There's a personal use defense and l- practically speaking, we're not going to be going around suing everybody individually. Have you, I've not, I've not certainly not got a 3D printer at home. I don't know whether if, if I did get one of these ones that I've seen advertised that it could, it's capable of doing what you're talking about. So I'm interested to hear, you know, as an industry specialist, has that actually played out? Do you see it ever playing out or? It's very interesting you bring this to the table because the complexity of it, where it was even five years ago, even two years ago, compared to where it is now, the machines that we use were laser sintering machines. So you're not using like thermoplastic extrusion based, what we call FDM filament machines, uh, just because Anything with surgery with us, if we're anything under 50 microns out, it's rejected. It's your tolerances are too far off. You you will have a failure and your your risk and mitigation of, of issues compounding from that is, is just too high. So you've got to make sure that your part is too spec. So we use laser sintering with a nylon machine where you take nylon powder and with a laser fuse the particles together and the dimensional accuracy on your X, Y, and Z platforms really come into play. So these are very high-end, professional, environmentally controlled uh, machines that are even down to the room temperature, to the oxygen levels, to the flush-rich argon gas. There's a, there's a lot that goes on. So, you know, these were seen as the high-spec machines back then. But if it really comes down to, is everybody going to start making product and turning it into, um, you know, end-use products in a quickly, in a quick format? The problem that is, is that it comes down to surface finish. If you know what injection molding is like, it comes out, you can have like a mirror finish if you'd like. 3D printing being layer by layer at this stage can get you a very, very smooth finish, sure. And you can get your probably your tolerances correct, but there's certain areas of when it comes to surface texture and surface kind of a deformation. When I say deformation, I'm referring to like the corners being rounded or the accuracy of the corner of the 90 degree corner. These are elements all based on how the part sits within the machine while it's printing and what angle it sits at because something that's sitting upside down or something that's lying on the side, we're going to have different dimensional accuracies overall. So you've got to look at these things. But, you know, what's actually we've noticed happening is that the machines are not the problem that we're having to worry about right now. It's going to be the materials because materials coming into play are becoming a lot more precision and the outputs of them are coming into a lot more precision features. And, uh, and, to try and give an example on this is you're getting smart materials come to the table that can be a thermoplastic or a nylon or anything along those lines that now can be used as electric conductivity. So is it the design you're now looking for or is it going to be the, the outcome function of the part? Meaning if you have a part that you, let's say a cup, right? So you print a cup, dimensionally you can print that. Yes, you might not the great get the greatest surface finish. But that might, might, might not be what you're looking for. You might be looking for, I want to know what the pH level or the conductivity or the temperature of that or the, the weight of that solution is in the cup. So be able to take, take smart materials that you can pull data out of. That opens a new door when it comes to design. And that's, that, I think that's more scary than anybody copying your product. 
because it can come, we're all living in a digital world now, and it's a data aspect here. Well, that, 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 that brings in lots of interesting questions, even from a particular, this is an IP podcast. I'd love to talk to you more about the background with the printing your own parts uh, uh, to rebuild yourself, Jason. But I think this brings in lots of interesting questions from an IP perspective, because yeah. now you're talking about smart materials and, you know, we have artificial intelligence you sure. know, and, 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 and we understand that to an extent in that you have software, the software reprogrammed and the, the artificial intelligence is generally linked to that software and that coding. So the result tends to, you can tend to uh, link the result to the coder. Here, we're talking about smart materials now. Yeah. And, and my fairly lay understanding of that is that it could include anything from, like you said, conductivity to testing the pH levels to, um, it's a 4D printing is something I've heard of now as well. And that's materials that can change shape uh. and, and, and the like. And, and when we start talking about smart materials and thinking, well, it, how are you connecting that coder or that software? How does that work? And then if you have that material creating some new IP or something that I was thinking about in terms of the 4D uh, printing and, and the designs altering by themselves, you know, autonomously almost, can they do that? Can they change autonomously? Is that where you see it? And therefore, if you can change a design autonomously or artificially, who owns those rights? I mean, that brings in a whole new world of questions, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because, you know, we talk about, like you mentioned, 4D. 4D is changing the shape after it's been printed into something. So by adding another element to that, saying that it's now going to be pulling data for thermal conductivity or flexural strain or you know pressure loading or something else like that, is that not now going to a 5D realm? Yeah. But and yeah. then when yeah. it comes to design, where, where does the design principle sit? Does it sit with the actual physical shape? Does it sit with the physical function? Does it fit with the physical data output? And, and then is all three together a design function? You know, it, it changes the game as to where it's going. And then... Then you've got to look at what sectors it goes into, and it just becomes this tree or spider web of who owns what at what given point, and how can you do licensing when it comes to that? How do you do IP stacking? And if there's multiple industries in, in play, that who owns what with part of that kind of like IP tree essentially. Yeah. It's, but it's this is the future where it's going. It's, so it's not so much the design. We're working now with generative design. So you can take a part and you can make it perform better with less weighted shape, but that's that can add a whole new feature to what you're doing. So that's going to be, I feel sorry for you guys, it must be very difficult to figure out where to go next to. Yeah, I think that's a um, very interesting thing. So I obviously work more on um, drafting and prosecution of patents. So I mean, one of the things that it's good to ask manufacturers is, is it possible to make this part by 3D printing? That's what classically we would do. Um, to make sure we have a claim to the G code because the European Patent Office have actually put in their guidelines that that is an allowable claim as long as it has certain, um, satisfies certain criteria. For example, it has to reference the product. It has to have operating instructions that are adapted to a control and additive manufacturing device to fabricate that product. Without that, then it could just um, be more like a CAD file, which would not be patentable. But as long as it has those steps in there, then the implied use has a technical effect. But also what you mentioned there about smart materials and data collection, we then have to consider 
whether as a normal question, we should be asking whether they're using some of these materials like graphene, um, and whether we should include things like a method claim for harvesting the data. It's like all valid questions, aren't they? And I think I, I, I'm going back to, um, almost the very beginning of this conversation, Jason, you mentioned that the, the forks on your bike failed. Yep. Is this something now that could potentially be avoided with the use of smart materials? Do you see that the technology is evolving in such a way that materials can identify when they have small errors or the small breaks in them that aren't visible to the eye? Absolutely. I mean, it, if I take my whole journey of, of my years of career, so going from the jewelry industry, we work with hallmarks on, on gold that tell you what the specific gold density is in within your ring, right? In the medical field, you've got to have certain compliances to make sure whatever medical device is covered by certain regulatory controls in the manufacturer meets with ISO 13485 certifications or rest of it. So now I'll be able to have smart materials that kind of have a hallmarking system or coded in the system. You know, it would change the game as to how parts actually get manufactured and the, the reliability of because with the like autonomous vehicles, unmanned autonomous vehicles coming about, I would keep saying this, would you get into a car not knowing what the health of a vehicle is if it was going to drive you around? But if that vehicle was able to tell you based on all the materials and the specifications that are kind of hallmark, that are now digitally accessible through a, a, a portal of some sort, that the car could actually go, sorry, I can't take you. A certain part of my car is actually not functioning to spec. And I'm not talking about the mechanical function. I'm actually talking the material itself, like the frame or the component structure of a part or something like that. If it's saying it's it's fatigued to beyond uh, you know, its use and or it's overheating or whatever, it, it can actually return itself back to its depot to be able to then be kind of health checked. With the, that's kind of along the lines that I think we could potentially see it going. You know, had I got onto a bike, I don't know who their, fra their frame was. But yes, I know who the frame was made by, but I don't know what the processes went through. How do I even know? Because it's got a brand on it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. How do you see um, the role of, of this in terms of anti-counterfeiting measures? Uh, it's it's going to, there's definitely going to be a massive change because the way, like take for instance, we work a lot with graphene and what we call functionalization of graphene. And what that is, is we're taking certain groups within the graphene and we through a special process, um, which is not a chemical process, it's a plasma-based process that it binds to other materials. So you're actually becoming like a singular, like I'm trying to do it in layman's terms without going too scientific here. We kind of create our own molecule essentially of a polymer. And the way we can stack the graphene or we can work with it, we can actually almost make a code. So if we create even digital inks, Amazing. you can actually then go, well, hang on, now with your, uh, like your NFCs, your near field readers, essentially, you can bring your phone close to it and tag and go, based on what I'm getting feedback, the specification of the material is met the requirements based on the hallmarks and the compliances to spec. Yep. Is it made by the producer or is it being counterfeited? But you wouldn't be able to have a counterfeit because that particular goes down to molecular level and they would have to they would have to try and reverse engineer what we've done and very difficult to when it's been turned into a product. It's the same as like Coca-Cola, where you can see what's on the label, but you don't know what their mixing ratio is as a man on the ground. So that's a, that's a phenomenal leap forward, isn't it? If you can yeah. input a code within the material itself, it's not visible to the naked eye. No. You need that reader to be able to identify it. Um, it cannot be counterfeited uh, through that technology, one would think at this moment, until someone finds a way of, of, of getting around it. And uh, ultimately, these things often happen. But it, it seems like this is a, a, a very 
a good method of, of preventing uh, counterfeiting products um, to have that molecular level type of security in, in the design. Now, question is, is that, do you see that Jason as being cost prohibitive or is that something that can be produced on a mass scale? So I'm thinking it sounds fant fantastic in theory to have anti-counterfeiting security measures within the polymers themselves or whatever the product or whatever the material is. But in reality, is it a cost exercise or do you see this as something that could be more wide scale? It actually is more beneficial on a mass scale perspective, but there's another spin that comes with that because you're now able to track the materials. You know, if you go find a, a like a plastic bottle floating in a river and you took it to took out the river, you know nothing about that plastic bottle. You you know, yeah, it might say PETG or might have um, some form of other material on it, but how do you know? Because it's got a hallmark and it doesn't anybody can put a hallmark on a on a on a mold, but how do you know? So what happens if the that manufacturers from an environmental point of view had the ability to bring that material back and actually like back in the day you used to hand your glass coke bottles into the shops and you used to get like you get a refund for your glass bottles well, <laughs> yeah. that's where i came from that's what they used to but with plastic you could actually start adding a new value because you would actually know by running a potential current through that plastic or whatever it is you will know what the properties are digitally on a bottle that's been made years down the line and if it's even if it's efficient to be able to be repurposed or recycled and if it's recycled you know what the values are left in that material yeah so that when you're putting it back you're creating an efficiency of recycling or repurposing and you could actually say well because it was used in bottles you're not allowed to use bottles in, in medical but we may be able to use it for i don't know some industrial application because the the, the po policy or procedure around that is slightly less from the standards reliability would be yeah so you can actually use it based on actual algorithms and you can actually make a resell of their plastic bottle so it adds a new value so it, it's i think it would be add it would change the game as far as the plastic world goes and presumably as well again theorizing here but it doesn't just need to be the whole plastic bottle you could have no. plastic parts within a, a, another correct a, another product so take for example an article of clothing you know a jumper or a t-shirt you could add in a, 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 another polarum element in that piece of clothing that has no writing on it, no hallmarks, no nothing visible. But when you scanned, you're able to trace exactly. the origination of, of that of that product, which is quite phenomenal. Or, or whatever it might be, shoes, trainers, things where you yeah. can put in a part of a polymer. And it doesn't need to be the whole thing; it can just be a, a small a small part. But that part can then trace back to the origins, which I think would be an absolute game changer. Absolutely. I mean, you could even to the point in like the writing in the label, in the ink that goes into the label on the writing, you can have a coding in that label. How would you do that? So, so you work with different types of nanotubes within graphene. Graphene, everybody just thinks it's just like a flat sheet. There's different sizes and different ways of, of that, that kind of compounded together. And there's a certain way in layman's terms is that you stack them to some degree that can create a, a biological code. And by doing that, you then create a resonance and there's a whole frequency range that comes with that. And you actually get a code number, a signature that comes from it. And from that you get your, there's just no ways to hack it. You'd have to try and break down that ink. You'd have to reverse engineer that coding in it to, and you'd have to do the entire scripting that you'd on that. That So you might as well just remove the whole thing from the from the device itself. There's just there's no ways. So you could even get it in a logo, presumably then, couldn't Correct. you? Correct, yeah. You know, sports brand of clothing or in a high-end fashion wear, you'd be able to tag it and go, well, this is legit. 20, 50 years from now, like a hallmark on a, on a jewelry piece, you would know it's legit. Yeah. 
and has it been a knockoff? Because how else other would you know? That is a phenomenal game changer, I think, in the world of anti-counterfeiting. One in terms of, you know, you could imagine as well working with, you know, border force perhaps who are you know, where the goods are being imported. And this is, you know, not just important for clothing, but I'm, I'm thinking particularly for, for for products that have a health and safety aspect to them. You mentioned autonomous vehicles. You know, that's an area where there's a, there's a significant amount of uh, counterfeit activity. If you are able to trace those materials and verify the safety of them, it's not just you know this is about saving lives potentially here as well, isn't it? Absolutely, because I mean, you think the, like pharmaceuticals. Imagine counterfeit pharmaceuticals. If it goes into a packaging, that code is then created during the manufacturing process at the right facility. So it's not like anybody could hack the system and run on their machines in another country somewhere. There would have it would be a whole linked up secure, you can even go through blockchaining type scenario to develop a way to make sure that whatever that product's coming from a reliable pharmaceutical company, it actually is legit. It's mind-blowing really, isn't it? If, if we were going to um, summarize this and, and just put like some final thoughts on it, I mean, what, what would you see as the main prediction for the future in this area? What activities were you, are you going to be focusing on with ProMake? So obviously with our, our core focus is how we functionalizing and coding the graphene to, to the needs, you know, making sure that it's for the benefit and, uh, you know, the well-being of, of the human species and not just human across the globe before anything, but be able to, to, to really bring it down to something really like put into layman's terms. I think it's going to come down to how we code these things and the types of codings that we put into and how do we protect those codings whether it be we're coding the material to perform a certain way or give us data a certain way or give us feedback a certain way. And how do we recycle and bring those back to to the world again? You know, it's, it's going to be quite interesting. It's 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 really out there right now. Hey, Paul, have you, have, you seen, have you seen an increase in patent filings in the realm of 3D printing recently? Because I imagine there was a big steep curve in the sort of 2000s and then maybe tapered off, plateaued. Are we seeing another increase now? I did look at the patent filings in the IPC class for additive manufacturing. And since about 2013, there was a sharp uptick in the number of filings around then. And that has continued. I don't know whether you call it exponentially. I suppose it's more like linearly after a sharp change. And currently, globally, there's about over 20,000 applications a year or patent families. And that goes up till 2021. So it's still a, a huge area of interest. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder if, you know, with the technology that's developing, whether we'll we'll see a rise in in patent filings continuing. If Jason, is it is it a focus of of, of yourself and your business now to protect the intellectual property rights uh, behind the technologies that you're inventing? A lot of the products that we're going to be coming going forward is going to have to include a lot of data data capture. We've got a I can't really say who it is right now, but uh, we have a partnership with a massive entity should i say that it works a lot around on the on data side so there, there's a lot of rp that we have to protect going forward so we're already there we're already doing it and uh, it's it's not going to just be us it's going to be a lot of people soon so it's going to be very interesting so yeah that looks like some really interesting developments in 3d printing and specifically the use of smart materials i just want to thank chris for taking the time to come and do the podcast And also Jason for coming and visiting us and doing the podcast. And hopefully we'll see him again at some point. 
Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Leagues. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialists to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.